This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hey, welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And I am so stoked for this next uh, this next segment. And I just said stoked on the air. I think I just Showing aged myself. Age. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I am very excited about it because it's a topic that I've probably been pounding this drum for a little while. I'm personally affected by it. But, you know, it was spurred first and foremost by, you know, news that came out last week mm-hmm. around, um, you know, a billionaire canceling out the student debt of this year's graduating Morehouse College graduates. So uh, it, it was just a really exciting and interesting to see. But my initial thought was like, that's great. But what about everyone else? Mm-hmm. And like, thank you, donor, for doing that. So it made me think about the broader landscape of um, the the student loan crisis, yeah, I, think, I think, the student the debt right crisis mm-hmm. uh, that I think this country is facing. And I wanted to get some experts on here. So first and foremost, let's welcome Ben Miller to the show. Ben is the Vice President for Post-Secondary Education at the Center for American Progress. Welcome to Dollars and Change. Thanks so much for having me. So Ben, can you paint the picture for our listeners of the student debt crisis in this country? Give us some some facts and figures. We'll all hold on to our hats. Sure. So, you know, overall, we're looking at about $1.4 trillion in outstanding federal student loans held by about 44 million different Americans, which, if you think about it, is roughly one out of every six adult Americans in this country. So it, it is very wide. It is very pervasive. And, you know, I think what you really see is the kind of two tails of the debt distribution are where you have the, the biggest problems. Because, you know, what, what we see when I when I study this is that the people who are actually most struggling with their student loans are those who borrowed maybe a little bit of money to try college and it didn't work out for them. Mm. So we see that, you know, among people who default on a student loan, the average balance is a little bit under $10,000. You know, it's not that like big eye popping figure because that tends to be a lot of low income students who tried, say, a community college or were suckered into a private for profit college and you know, didn't really know what they were getting and they're really struggling to repay. Yep. And then, and they, then they didn't get the earning potential. Exactly. You know, the whole point of a student yep. loan is borrow against your future earnings. Yep. If you borrow a little bit of money, but you don't finish, you're not going to get that earnings boost. And then the other thing you see is at the sort of other end of the distribution, you know, we, we have an economy now that increasingly demands people go on to graduate education. And what we're really seeing there is that a lot of these graduate programs can be extremely expensive And you may take a debt balance that is manageable, maybe not ideal, but manageable from undergraduate and double or triple it in a year or two. And so for those individuals, it's less that they're likely to default, but more that what they're able to do is significantly constrained by their loan payment because, you know, it's all getting money that might go to a house, start a business, start a family, something like that is just all getting eaten up by the loan payment. Thanks for painting that uh Startling, <laughs> startling, stark picture for us. Um, and I do want to welcome to the show Adam Harris, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me. We are delighted to have you. And Ben, I just wanted to follow up on something you just talked about. Um, we are. Is there a, is there a race disparity or an ethnicity disparity? Do we even have data on you know defaults along those lines? 
Yeah, and unfortunately, I mean, the, the difference is quite stark and quite troubling. So we don't have data at an institutional level in terms of race, but what we can see is sort of... Does that mean like university by university correct, or post-secondary correct. institution? Yeah, okay. so you can't look up, you know, how what is the debt situation for borrowers of color at, say, you know, the University of Virginia versus University of Maryland College Park, but you can sort of zoom out and say kind of countrywide what's going on. And... You know, the best data we have for this is a little bit old. It's for people who started college in 2003, 2004, but it tracks them for up to 15 years. And really, I think that the couple things, the three key numbers really stand out from that. So one is uh, about half of black or African-American borrowers defaulted on their loans within 12 years of entering college, uh, which is much, much higher than kind of any other racial or ethnic group. Uh, The second is that, you know, within 12 years of entering college, the typical... Uh, black or African-American borrower actually owes more on their loans than what they originally borrowed. So it's not just that they've made no progress paying down their loan, but they actually have higher loan balances than they did at first. Um, and the, the third is that, you know, we typically think of the bachelor's degree as this thing that can really insulate you from student loan struggles. You know, in general, people who have a bachelor's degree are much less likely to default. And what we see there is that for a white borrower, you know, only 6% of bachelor's degree graduates default on their loan. It's four times higher for black or African-American borrowers. And so it's, it's really suggesting that, you know, there is a very stark difference in terms of what's going on here by race, particularly for black or African-American borrowers who are much more likely to be forced to borrow, more likely to borrow more and have worse outcomes in repayment, which, you know, is probably attributable to things that a little bit of college quality and then also probably a lot of factors that are sort of outside the direct control of colleges like wage discrimination, housing discrimination, things of that nature. Sure. Adam, you focus on, on education at the Atlantic. Can you highlight a couple trends that you think are sort of being overlaid with the debt crisis? What are we seeing in terms of future of work, jobs, the role of graduate school, you know, potentially the majors that uh, we're seeing folks select in their education? Yeah. So there is kind of this trend of, um, you know, colleges saying that, oh, maybe we need to move away from from kind of these liberal arts degrees um, because those don't have kind of a direct track to to the job market. But quite broadly, I mean, there there has been research that has shown that, you know, if you get a, a degree in history, say that's going to pay off in, in long term earnings. Um, but I mean, as 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 kind of been mentioned, this 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 crisis, the student debt crisis among black borrowers in particular, also tracks alongside um, housing discrimination. It tracks alongside wealth, um, wealth disparities in the black community. Um, so kind of things that are, that are kind of this historical legacy of discrimination. And that's not something that's only extended to black students, but also to the colleges which they've historically attended. So thinking about places like historically black colleges and universities, um, which have since their genesis kind of been underfunded. Um, So one of the things that you've been seeing over the last several years is kind of this emphasis on making sure that the institutions where um, black and minority students are actually attending are receiving some of those resources so that they can um, provide some of that service, some of those extra resources to students that they need in order to be successful in higher ed. What are some of those resources? Um, the biggest one is funding. Um, but then also you have kind of the wraparound uh, resources, right? So um, thinking about career counseling, thinking about, um, you know, once a student gets to campus, um, 
the food and and the housing and things that are absolutely necessary for their success. Um, and then also factoring in, you know, the growing share of adult students. Um, so making sure that they have the resources necessary, um, whether that is counseling, whether that is um, having advisors on campus um, to be successful um, in the long term. And, and I kind of want to paint this for our listeners a little bit. So here we sit, very privileged at the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School. And, you know, I did my graduate degree here, but I, I did go to a private uh, nonprofit institution in undergrad. And even though that in itself is very different than a public institution, um, potentially other types of historically black colleges and universities or minority serving institutions and the resources I was afforded, I was absolutely struck by how mechanized on-campus recruiting is, the types of here career at Penn. here at Penn, Ooh, when I, you know, yep. between undergrad and grad school. Yep. And again, I cannot imagine, you know, where it was a stark difference between my, you know, Southern private education versus like, uh, you know, let's say UT, University of Texas Brownsville or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Adam, I think you're highlighting just some of those wraparound services that I, you know, even as a white guy here at Penn, I, I actually saw myself. Yeah. And, and actually, as you're, as you're mentioning that, I'm thinking about this, this reporting that I did last year in Mississippi, um, where, you know, the largest case in history, um, financial-wise, longest-running case as well, um, to desegregate higher education um, – was essentially this case where the black colleges in Mississippi, the public black colleges, got $500 million over the course of 17 years to address the state's historical legacy of discrimination. Um, And if you think about that in the big picture, like the University of Mississippi can make $500 million in five years in private donations. So if you're thinking about how that kind of institutional structure has been built in over the years, um, and they've created this model that, that is... Um, kind of self-supporting at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really addressing addressing the now is really addressing those links to that historical piece. And so, Ben, I want to or Adam, sorry, Adam, I want to stick with you for just one second so that our listeners better understand what happened at Morehouse College just last week. Yeah, so at Morehouse College um, during the commencement, this this billionaire philanthropist um, and also a venture capitalist Robert Smith, um, you know, stands up and he's he's giving the commencement address and he informs them that he's going to be paying off the debt of all the students. Um, the The estimate that the college was giving at the time was that this would affect roughly 400 students and would be about 40 million dollars in debt relief. Now there have been a lot of questions about how much this donation will actually be, but the immediate reaction was, you know, this, this elation, right? You know, you have hundreds of student who, students who have now had their debt paid off. But then there's also this question of what about the student who needed to take one extra course for graduation and graduates in August and now is no longer eligible for that debt cancellation, even though um, they were in, you know, they, they were that close um, and they might still be in the same amount of debt as those students who graduated in yeah. May. Or one class um, more. So it, it started to it spawned a lot of these questions about, you know, broadly, this is a systemic problem and it needs a systemic fix beyond, you know, the generosity of some billionaires. Maybe that means taxing those billionaires more in order to to pay for some of those services. Um, or maybe that just means rethinking the fundamental structure of, of student loans in the system. Yeah. And we're starting to see a lot of political dialogue emerge about this, you know, policies being proposed and, and things of the like. Ben, one tool we always try to give our listeners um, is the ability to sense make around things that might not be, you know, areas of expertise in their world. So not to get political and, and ask you to sort of 
promote or endorse or reject any particular policy. What should folks know as they're absorbing the news, watching, uh, you know, these different, whether they're 2020 candidates or senators come out with um, proposed policies? What would you hope everyone can take away from this show as they think about here and read these these uh, proposals? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things we've seen in the policy discussions around this issue is you kind of have two different tracks you need solutions on. So one is what do you do for people who, you know, maybe aren't in higher education yet, but are going to be going shortly? And I think that's a question of sort of what is your plan to either bring down the price of offering college or bring down the price that students pay for college and what are the mechanisms or theory of change there? Because, you know, at the end of the day, student loans are a function of the price of the higher education being offered. And, and if you don't do anything to tackle that, you're just going to keep on having a debt problem going forward. So that's curing the problem, it sounds like. Yeah. And what, is and it, what is the treating, I imagine, is the second half of that? Correct. So then the question becomes, okay, like let's say someone snapped their fingers and tomorrow we dealt with college affordability for all these new students. You'd still have, you mm-hmm. know, 44 million people walking around with some sort of student loan. And I think there the question becomes, you know, what do we do with those people? And I think part of the challenge here is that historically the way we thought about this problem is mostly in terms of interest rates because that's kind of what people are just sort of accustomed to understanding in terms of loans. And, you know, for people who've got the really high debt balances, the interest rate probably does make a difference. But for those folks I was talking about earlier who have, you know, only $10,000 in debt and didn't finish college – the interest rate could be zero and it's probably not going to change their likelihood of not defaulting. And so, you know, I think there that the question becomes, you know, do we have ideas on the table to say, you know, look, we forced a bunch of people to borrow loans that a rational financing system probably never should have made borrow because we knew they were low income and it should have been easier. And is there some rational way to do some combination of make that debt more affordable, get rid of some of it through some sort of cancellation or something like that. But sort of understanding that you you kind of need fixes for both because, you know, imagine that we only fix the current borrowers. Well, you know, wait 10 years, you'd have a couple million more sure, current yep, borrowers. Yeah. And, you know, on the flip side, if you only did something for future affordability, it doesn't help the person walking around with the debt right now. You're listening to Dollars and Change, and I'm your host, Nick Ashburn, with Sandy Hunt, and we're speaking with Adam Harris, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Ben Miller, vice president for post-secondary education at the Center for American Progress. And Ben, to stick with you a little bit, um, can you give our listeners a sense of sort of what the economic effects of these of, of the student debt crisis is or are? Um, and do we understand the differences between, you know, you know, white borrowers versus, you know, African-American or other minority borrowers? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the research on the economics is, isn't great, partially because some of these things is just, are just hard to see. Um, in particular, you know, what we don't have as great a sense of is what are sort of the detrimental effects of student loan defaults on people long term. So we know that, for instance, if you default on a loan, we can garnish your weight or not we, the federal government can garnish your wages. It can take social security. It can um, wreck your credit, things like that. And we don't really know kind of what the long-term effects of that are on people. So we don't know for those individuals what's going on. On the other side, we do see some evidence that at the very least, um, having student loan debt certainly at least delays house purchasing. It, it gets a little bit hard to tell just because in general, people who are college educated are much more likely to own homes than people who are not college educated. So you still see fairly high rates of home ownership, but for, it's certainly For delayed. reasons other than income? 
Uh, no, basically just that college graduates tend to have, you know, make more money than non-college graduates. And, and that's sort of been exacerbated over time as you've sort of seen the bottom really fall out for people who don't have college degrees versus those who do. So for, for those who do have debt, they may have a slightly higher home ownership rate than say like a high school graduate who never went to college. But within people who ha have college degrees, those who have debt, if they buy homes, they buy them later, if, if that makes sense. Um, you know, again, part of the challenge we have here is we can see through some of these um, sample surveys that there certainly are differential effects in terms of loan outcomes by race or ethnicity. But I haven't seen a lot of research that's really able to dig into that question in terms of the buying a home or starting a business or those types of questions, because often the data sets aren't quite as good. Sure. Well, it sounds like you're tracking them. So, you know, those yeah. those findings will emerge. We'll have you back on the show or in five or, or 10 years as that longitudinal data becomes more available. Um, Adam, I'm wondering if you can, you know, talk a little bit as, as sort of you cover education to our listeners who are going to take Ben's great advice on how to think about policies to change either the, the treating or the curing of this issue. But what about folks who are in it now, uh, students or parents who are approaching college age, trying to navigate the system, trying to make sense of what's smart, whether with regards to college selection, major selection, uh, you know, do I go try to go community college now because I need to take on loans for a graduate degree? Is a graduate degree necessary? Do you have any advice um, from your work in the field that might help these folks make some decisions? Yeah, well, I think the first thing is that it's hard to kind of read the tea leaves because we don't necessarily know what will be shifting in the policy landscape over the next several years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there are states like Tennessee that has Tennessee Promise. Um, you have New Jersey that's kind of ushering in its own kind of, um, you know, two-year free college program. Um, so I think the, the biggest thing for prospective students is to kind of look and see what the what the options are in terms of um, those kind of programs that are offering um, education for for um, little to no tuition fees. Um, I think that in North Carolina, you have uh, the thing, basically the North Carolina promise that uh, at three institutions, it's five hundred dollars for in-state tuition per semester and fifteen hundred for out-of-state tuition per semester. So there are places that are that are kind of working at, at making this college model more affordable. Um, but in, in terms of, of choosing a major, it would be really difficult to kind of offer um, any suggestion because I mean the, the the paths do do look kind of um, different depending on who the person is. Um, I think the, the advice that um, parents love to give, uh, or at least my parents gave me, is to, to choose what you like. Um, and and it, things will pan out from there. Of course, that might not have been the best um, advice. Um, no, but I think I yeah. think there's research to suggest uh, sort of forcing a, a major often leaves someone with a, a an expensive student loan and a career they're yeah. dispassionate about. So I think there's something there. Um, but or, or I'm just thinking like, <laughs> or you can also graduate in the middle of the financial crisis with a ton of debt and not know, hey, that was, I thought I did something smart and I don't know what I'm going to do. Exactly. But yeah. it sounds like, Adam, your, you know, your advice is take, take a look maybe at what your states offer. It sounds like a lot's happening state by state versus federal. Uh, yes. And, and sort yeah. of seeing what those options are. I think at a bare minimum, people are startled enough by the headlines that the um, – sort of the, the older of us millennials, Nick and myself and others sort of went to college in an era where loans were available, a financial crisis hadn't yet happened, the student loan crisis wasn't a headline issue. And so we are, so we're all, we're all sort of lulled into this is how things work and it's fine. I think right now there's been enough of a 
you know, tidal wave of headlines and issues around this that folks are saying, oh, I, I need to really take a look at my options and consider consider costs because student loans aren't maybe what we thought they were 20 years ago. Yeah. And there was there was um, one of the things that keeps coming up in my reporting is that student loans were supposed to be um, a tool that could be used to pay for college. And now as they've kind of become the key, um, mm-hmm. people are kind of having to make a little bit more um, informed decisions about exactly how to use them. And so I, I am curious, um, Adam, going back to our example that prompted us to have this segment with um, Robert Smith and Morehouse College, um, I'm struck. We actually do a loan forgiveness program through the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Yes. And it is a pain in the ass ah! to process <laughs> the payments. Yes. Because um, so- you're, you're paying – you know, a, a tremendously diverse group of loan providers. Right. The servicers. Yeah. Yeah. And so do we have any sense as to, you know, they, I, some of the, it might have been your article um, in The Atlantic that mentioned it was, a, you know, it's a donation to the school. But for us, it, it yes, we received the funding from a donor but and we managed the processing of that. But that's a pain in the butt. So I'm just curious, like, do we have any sense as to how this will actually work for that number of students? Because we do like 20 maybe a year. We do a couple dozen. And it yeah. is, you know, a half, I would say it's like a half FTE to like fully <laughs> process all these. So right in theory, exactly. there's a, uh, hopefully he also funded a, a team of staffers. But yeah. To be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. The 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 mechanics of this are still very much in flux and, and there's still a lot of questions about how exactly this is going to be paid out there. I mean, off the bat, there was a question about whether or not he would be paying off parent plus loans as well as student loans. Um, Poor and, God, no good uh, deed goes unpunished. <laughs> these, yeah. are, these are good questions. Exactly. Womp, womp. Um, so there's, um, there, there are all of these questions about what exactly and how exactly this will be meted out that will be that will likely be um, decided over the next couple of weeks. So it's something that that we're closely monitoring in terms of, um, you know, how exactly this debt relief happens, because it's a big thing um, for a lot of students. And um, the, the nuts and bolts are, are kind of where you'll see whether or not it's a good thing. Yeah, we, ch- we chatted before the segment about a, a comment a friend of mine made about the treasure trove of data that this cl- graduating class from Morehouse will provide because you'll be able to do, in theory, A-B testing on the students that graduate and have their loans forgiven and the class before or after them that may not have that benefit. Or even that one that took the extra cl- that course, summer, that, that would be even more like like for like. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you're going to have, you know, this data, uh, you know, I guess, Ben, are you, are you or anyone you're aware of Take, you know, taking a crack at that research now that we have this interesting case study? Well, that's uh, unfortunately, it's not typically the type of work we do, but I would imagine there's got to be a lot of uh, academics at colleges and universities who are clamoring to, to study that more. The, the one thing we have seen actually a couple of weeks ago, there was an interesting paper that came out uh, from the National Bureau of Economic Research where they looked at um, essentially accidental loan forgiveness. We had this situation where there was a major holder of uh, private student loans who... <laughs> couldn't keep track of chain of title of who owned them and so Stop essentially it. had to forgive a bunch of debts and it was it was hor- not, it not entirely me. random but um they, they made it, ended up forgiving a bunch of debts for people who in default and the thing that was really interesting about it was you know you think about that and say okay you've got a loan that suddenly gets forgiven you've got a bunch of freed up uh money so you spend it and things look better etc but what was, really, what was really interesting for these people was they actually weren't paying anyway. They were already in default. They weren't making any payments. So they didn't actually get any additional cash flow from it. Right. But even still, hmm. they actually started deleveraging. Like their credit card debt went down. Wow. Other kinds of debt went down. And so I, I don't know if that suggests there's some sort of psychological benefit to this that goes beyond just sort of the 
the the bookkeeping and the cash sure. flow. But it was very interesting to see because, you know, again, this shouldn't have affected their monthly situation. But for whatever reason, they started all of a sudden actually having less debt in other areas. As that well. is a very fascinating phenomenon. I bet a lot of researchers are hard at work on, you know, making making yeah. sense of that in a paper. And then I do want to come back to something that Sandy said. You know, we talked about curing and treating from a policy perspective. And, you know, there are concrete policies out there, um, I think, on both sides of the aisle. Can you give our listeners a sense as to sort of what are some of the options potentially on the table? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in terms of what to do with people who currently have debt, you know, that we we tend to see options go on a couple paths. So one is some proposal out there that would provide some sort of automatic forgiveness for people, whether that's like everyone gets $5,000, $10,000, $50,000 just sort of forgiven as kind of a design to basically be as simple as possible. Because, you know, one of the challenges to your point earlier about the the program you're talking about is, you know, you can, when you try to have other benefits on there, it gets very complicated very fast, like if you want to target it or things like that. So that's one way. You see some calls for reducing interest rates uh, to sometimes people say like, you know, just reduce to the cost that cost the government to make the loan. Or some people say, make it 2%. They just sort of pick a number. Um, you see some calls for, uh, basically we have these existing plans called income driven repayment, where essentially it ties your loan payment to how much money you make. And, uh, you do that for 20 years and whatever's left at the end gets forgiven. And there's been some calls to make those more generous by either saying like, you know, you have to make, you have to pay less of your income toward the payment or you get forgiveness in sooner than 20 years, um, kind of trying to beef up basically things we have today. Um, there's not been quite as much from the sort of more right-leaning set of things about what to do with the current loan borrowers. I think the general sort of language on that has been that it's a lot of um, individual student choice and... You know, um, Lamar Alexander, who's the chairman of the Senate committee that deals with this issue, has written a bunch of op-eds saying, you know, typical student loan debt is kind of akin to like a car loan and it's not as big a deal as people are making it out. So I think there's been less of an emphasis there. In terms of what do you do for sort of future affordability, the big split there is, you know, the, the general feeling is we used to have kind of an unspoken social contract in this country where... If you uh, wanted to go to a public college in your home state, the state would subsidize that fairly substantially to the point where you might be only paying, you know, 20% of the actual cost of the education or potentially even lower so that, you know, you could go on a minimum wage salary and still be able to afford college. And what we've seen over time is that that, that deal has basically fallen apart. Colleges have cut funding to higher education and really stepped away. And so you see a lot of proposals out there that are trying to kind of reestablish an expectation for state funding here, typically done through some sort of matching program with the federal government. So, you know, that could look like something like Medicaid, where, you know, the federal government essentially reimburses states for costs incurred. It could look like something like a, the Title I program, which funds uh, low-resourced K-12 schools, where basically they have to maintain funding at a certain level and then additional money comes in. But the big idea there is it's all about kind of creating required funding expectations for the state so that they can't just sort of cut their budgets whenever they want for higher ed. Um, on the right, I think the place where you see it going a little bit more is a combination of saying, if we can get more entrance into the system, that will drive down costs through competition. Right. Because so one see, of the arguments is that if we actually pump more federal aid into the system, that it's going to actually continue to drive up costs. 
Yeah. I mean, that's been a very common argument. I mean, the yeah. funniest thing about that argument is it, it, it's called the Bennett hypothesis uh, in reference to former secretary of education, William Bennett. And to me, like the funniest thing about it is he coined this in a New York Times op-ed in the, the late 80s, basically to justify massive proposed cuts to the federal student aid programs. And he's, you know, he's I'm always shocked. Like, I'm always shocked to just see how much is written in an op-ed that becomes sort of gospel. Like yeah. versus like it's actually a scientific article or, you know, great journalism, but it's an op-ed right. that like becomes the, the gospel. Right. So um, I also just in the last minute we have here, Ben, I had to tell you that when I was looking at your New York Times op-ed, there was actually a for-profit, like a private for-profit university ad on that page, which I thought personally was a little <laughs> ironic. So um, I just wanted to share that. And, and I know that we are running out of time. So thank you so much for you both joining us. We've been speaking with Adam Harris, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Ben Miller, vice president for post-secondary education at the Center for American Progress. Uh, thank you so much for sticking with us for this show. It's been awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm Nick Ashburn with Sandy Hunt. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 